0: since I need to remember. Uh, yeah, that's been announced. But uh, yeah, please come back tonight up to Fellowship Bible Church. It's going to be a lot more low-key. So we'll uh, allow time for testimonies. Uh, we try to have a, a house meeting, house group meeting every month, once a month. But we're doing this uh, in lieu of a house meeting tonight. But it'll be much more informal. And we um, just going to hang out as a family and celebrate the baptism of, of three individuals who say, I want to proclaim to the world, it's behind me, and the cross is before me, and I'm not looking back, so let's open to Romans chapter 3, our text this morning is Romans 3, 1 through 8. Uh, fit the context, the word then, it's about the third word in our English translation, what advantage then? So he's answering a question that Paul himself has raised. And the question that Paul has raised is that circumcision really doesn't validate itself in cha- a changed life but a changed life validates what circumcision represents. And whether you're circumcised or whether you're uncircumcised, it's totally irrelevant because God looks on a new creation of the heart. And so Paul is addressing that question. What advantage then has the Jew? Or what is the profit of circumcision? Much in every way. Chiefly, Because to them were committed the oracles of God. For what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true and every man a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God what shall we say is God unjust who inflicts wrath I'm speaking as a man the natural man who doesn't understand the things of God the wisdom of the world that's the reasoning that he just quotes there certainly not for then how will God judge the world For if the truth of God has increased through my lie to his glory, why am I also still judged as a sinner? And why not say, Let us do evil that good may come, as we are slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say. The ones who say that, he's picking that up idea, their condemnation is just. Lord, we know that you are a good God. We know that you're a God of love. But we also know, God, that you're a God that is holy, without sin. And you're a God of justice, a God of righteousness. And you don't delight in iniquity. And you don't delight that any who are living in sin should perish. And God, you have provided a grace that abounds when our sin abounds. And God, that should never be mistaken for a reason to continue in sin, just so that your goodness is glorified. And God, there are special privileges that we as the church have, just as the Jew had. Let us understand what those privileges are. And let us understand this morning that those privileges actually don't negate your judgment, but they heighten your judgment. It says in James, Don't let many of you be teachers, for you will incur a stricter judgment. And the Jew who was to be an instructor to the blind, a teacher to the unwise and to the babe, Lord, you are going to demand more of him on the day of judgment. And your righteous judgment in this passage is completely exonerated for who you are and your character. And your judgment really reveals to us that there is no way that we can approach you without your righteousness. And Paul is helping us to understand all these truths God, I pray that you'll help us to see your truth this morning and live your truth. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Um, I was talking this morning with a couple of men, and he was mentioning one of my favorite preachers, and he said that this pastor always has these catchy sermon titles, (laughs) And, um, and I'm not too good at that. And my my message this morning is God's righteousness exonerated. I don't know if that really even fits the passage all that well. But I think that's sort of what Paul is getting at, that God's righteous judgment is exonerated, that man can't bring any accusations against God for his righteous judgment and our sinfulness. But the word to exonerate means to absolve someone from blame or fault or wrongdoing. And then... It's in the context, usually the word to exonerate. We think of that as a legal term in a courtroom. So it's really to prove or to remove any blame or fault or wrongdoing after due consideration of a case. And that's exactly what Paul has been doing since Romans 1:17. So we've got to back up because the context really starts at one eighteen and it ends at 3.20. So it's a long context that Paul is building this methodical case for the righteousness that is by faith. Now Paul wanted to get to the city of Rome. He'd been hindered from getting to Rome. He says, as much as within me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it alone, the gospel alone is the power of God unto salvation. There is no other method, there is no other means that God has ordained that man could be right with God other than the good news. For herein the righteousness of God is revealed. God's righteousness is revealed in the gospel. That God, yes, is a God of love, But God is also a God who judges sin. And the gospel reveals God's righteous wrath against sin, but also his love for sinners. Because our God of the Bible is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And there is no way that you and I can be right without God, without Jesus Christ in the crucifixion. So herein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith. That's the way we begin the Christian life. And it's all the way unto faith, from beginning to end. It's not that we start by faith and then we walk the Christian life in our own strength or our own power or under legalism or self-righteousness or merit. The Christian life begins with faith. We live it by faith. For God shall justify them through faith. He quotes from Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 4. And Habakkuk was struggling with this idea that God was going to use the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, a disgusting nation who was so ungodly. And Habakkuk has shown that they're going to conquer the Jewish people. And then after they conquer them, they're going to give credit to their pagan gods. And Habakkuk is saying, God, you're too just to even look on sin. How can you give this nation the right to judge us as Israelites? And so Habakkuk says, you know what, I just need to shut up. Because God, there's something I'm not quite seeing. And He says, I will be silent until I'm on my watch. And then God reveals to Habakkuk, you write this on a tablet so that you can run as you're reading it, for the just shall live by faith. Now the Babylonians, they did not escape God's wrath. We know after the conquest of Judah, seventy years later, the Medo-Persian Empire dominated the vast Babylonian Empire. But Habakkuk didn't see that coming. All he knew was God that you are a just God. God, you are a good God. And the only way that I can walk with you, the only way that I can even understand God, I have to throw out all human wisdom. and I have to walk by faith. And then he starts in 118, "For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness of men who suppress the truth. In unrighteousness. Then Paul goes on to explain in chapter 2 that we are all without an excuse. Nobody, whether you're Jew or Gentile, you have no excuse at all. And why does he give this strong argument? Because the Jew thought they had every excuse because they were God's chosen people. And he says, even the Gentiles, they don't have the oracles of God. They don't have the law of God. They don't have the prophets of God. They have the divine revelation through creation. All you have to do is look at a sunset. And you know that we are not the product of an accident. That that sun is situated in the exact spot that it needs to be. So that the earth is not burned If it was just a little bit closer, the earth would be frozen solid. And what a divine miracle. Day unto day utters speech. Night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, there is no language where God's voice is not heard. People always ask me, well, what about those who have never heard? Those people don't exist. Everybody has heard the voice of God. And Paul says they are without an excuse. Now, they might not know anything about Christ. They might not know anything about the plan of salvation. But if they will respond to the truth and the light that God gives them, God is a just and a good God who will give them more revelation. And we see this throughout the New Testament. We see it throughout the Old Testament. I've given you several examples. Naaman, the Syrian... Knew that there was a God in Israel. Didn't understand at all. His maiden had told him about this God in Israel. And he goes back. Boy, this is going to be a long sermon because none of this is in my notes. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so Naaman goes to Israel. And he goes to the king. And the king says, I can't do anything for you. But somebody says, there's a prophet named Elijah. And so he goes to Elijah, and Elijah says, Go down to the Jordan River and dip seven times. And he is so angry. He says, There's a lot of good rivers. I'm not going to go down to that muddy little creek in Jerusalem, in Jordan, and, and dip seven times. I'm going back home. And he's rebuked by one of his own men. He says, If that prophet had told you to do something incredibly difficult, you would have been eager to do that, right? Just to get rid of your leprosy. Why not trust God in faith alone and see what happens? And he went down and he dipped seven times. And you know what he does? He says, I want to take a load of dirt from Israel back to Syria. That doesn't make a lot of sense to us. But in the ancient Near East, every land had its own God. And he's saying, I am going to trust the God of Israel. I'm going to take their land back with me because now this is my God. Ruth, a Moabite, who was not to be allowed into the congregation of Israel for 10 generations, she is a lady that is seeking God, who wants to know more about God. And so what happens? Elimelech takes his wife down there. He dies, his sons die. And when Naomi is heading back to Israel, she says, your God, the God of Israel is my God. Your people, the Jewish people, they are my people. Wherever you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Where you die, I will die. She was a woman of faith and God gave her more revelation. A harlot from the city of Jericho knew that there was a God in Israel. She saw the plagues on Egypt and he says, this is the true God. And when those spies lodged there that night, she says, I know that your God is going to give this city over to you because yours is the God of heaven and earth. And Rahab was justified not by her works. Rahab was justified by faith. So when you see creation and you know that there's a mighty God out there, you know that God is eternal. You know that God is immaterial. You know that God is all-powerful, all-wise, and all-good and just. God will give you more truth. So the world is without excuse, and then Paul builds a case for the conscience. Every one of us have said this at one time in our life. That was not fair. Every one of us have said that. I didn't deserve that. Why don't you treat people the way I want to be treated? Or that doesn't make sense. Why don't? I? Yeah, it does. I don't know. You know what exactly what I mean, though. <laughs> What you're saying is I am appealing to a just moral law that is universal. And the minute that comes out of your mouth, you've acknowledged that there is an absolute divine creator. You are without excuse. And then Paul gives four reasons for judgment. One was creation. One was conscience. The other one, we will be judged by our works will be judged. Now, salvation is all by faith. But if your faith is shallow, if your faith is unreal, if your faith is not genuine, Jesus isn't going to judge you by what you came out of your mouth. He's going to judge you by what you did and says, Do your does your life match what you're saying? So our judgment is based on our works. And then he says, I'm also going to base judgment on the secrets of your heart. Man, I don't want anybody to know the secrets of my heart. I would be so embarrassed this morning to stand up if y'all knew the secret, wicked vileness of my own heart. You'd be looking for another pastor next week. But our God is so good, and our God is so just, and those are the things that God is going to judge us by, and none of us are going to escape any of that. And then in chapter 2, he starts to change, verse 17, and he focuses only on the Jew. And he says, you Jews, you're trusting in your circumcision. You're trusting in being a descendant of Abraham. You are trusting in your merit through the works. And he says, if the non-Jew, if he lives according to God's righteous standards and lives and walks by faith, his uncircumcision will become circumcision. And his Judaism will be that of the inward working of the heart. Verse 25 of chapter 2, For circumcision indeed is profitable if you keep the law, if you keep the entirety of the law. Nobody can do that. So circumcision is only a sign that I am a person of faith, that I believe the covenant of Abraham, that God is going to bless the nation of Israel, and that the nation of Israel is going to be a blessing to all people, and I trust that by faith. That's what real circumcision is about. But if you be a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. And then in verse 28 and 29. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor circumcision that which is outwardly in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is inward. And circumcision is that of the heart. In the spirit and not the letter. Whose praise is not from men, but is from God. It's interesting that the word Jew means Praise! What does it profit us to be part of the praiseworthy people of God? What advantage is it? What what profit is there in circumcision? So Paul's first point is verses 1 through 4. Verses 5 through 8, we see the adversative um, conjunction in verse 5, but. So it's another argument. It's one thought, but it's just two arguments. The first argument goes kind of like this. Our unfaithfulness to the truth does it not demonstrate how incredibly faithful God is you think about your life how many times have you been unfaithful how many times has your faith been weak I remember when I first got saved I was 17 years old I went off to a secular college and I would come back after some of my professors trying to fill my head with all kinds of garbage. And my faith was so weak. My faith was up and down. I remember my sister sending me a book trying to help me out by Josh McDowell, Evidence Advances a Verdict. That thing was about this thick and I couldn't read it. I, was, I said, i got enough to study. Don't put that on my plate too. So you know what I decided to do? I decided to pick up a Bible and read the life of Jesus Christ. And in my faithfulness, God always remained faithful to me to reveal himself to me. And so Paul's argument in his first four verses is our unfaithfulness to the truth. It demonstrates how incredibly faithful God is. So the Jews rightly asking maybe this question, I don't know, I mean, what advantage is there to the Jew? What advantage is circumcision? If Gentiles are just as viewed the same as we are, if, if, if circumcision really didn't change me, well, what is the advantage of it then? And Paul says, yes, it is. Chiefly, is this because you are the ambassadors for God. And you and I this morning, what advantage is it to be a Bible-believing Christian and to know God's truth? and that we are simply justified by faith alone, well, what advantage do we have? We are ambassadors for Christ. Paul is addressing those who had the privileges but didn't want to take the responsibility with it. What advantage is it? We want all the privileges, but we don't want all the responsibility that comes with it. We want the crown, but we don't want to carry the cross. How similar that is to our Christianity today. So Paul is addressing those who wanted the privileges without the responsibility. He says, you have been entrusted. It's the word for faith. It means to believe in someone. It means to put um, all of your confidence in them. It's used in John chapter 2, at the end of that gospel, where people believed in Jesus, but Jesus did not entrust himself to them. But God had looked at Israel and he looked at Abraham. He says, Abraham, you are a man of faith. You, Abraham, have been justified by faith. And so I'm going to entrust to you two things. One, the message of God and the Messiah of God. Israel's advantages, what they had, was the message of God. They had the very oracles. They had the revelation that there was one holy God. And God had chosen this nation out of all other nations. The same question is being asked by this interlocutor. The interlocutor is one who is trying to put God on the judgment seat. And you pick it up again in Romans chapter 9. And this is so key to understanding the book of Romans. The book of Romans is asking this question why is Israel's unbelief so prevalent? And why are so many Gentiles coming into the faith? And so that is the contextual way that we need to look at this book, especially when we go to chapter 9. And so in chapter 9, Paul enumerates all the privileges. He says, who are the Israelites? To whom pertain the adoption? He took this one nation and he adopted it. To them pertains the glory All the glory that God manifested in Egypt and the glory of the pillar that led them through the wilderness. This is Israel's. The covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God in the sanctuary, the liturgy, the sacrifices, the priesthood. All of this was given to Israel. And the promises of whom are the fathers and for whom, according to the flesh, Christ came. So what were they entrusted with? The very oracles of God, the message of God, and the Messiah of God. What an advantage. No other nation had that. So even though circumcision has to be the inwardly, there are special things that God does for everybody that is privileged to have, and those privileges demand responsibility. And so God, as the New Testament church, he has invested to us so many incredible privileges. So they were entrusted with this. Application. What is the application for us? Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us Be reconciled to God. That was Israel's privileged position, and that was their responsibility. They were to be a kingdom of priests. They were to be a holy nation. Our faithfulness, our faithlessness, demonstrates God's incredible faithfulness. I know that many of us have read through the book of Exodus and the journeys of Israel. And we say to ourselves, what a bunch of numbskulls. (laughs) And we say, how could they have been so stubborn? How could they have been so blind? How could they be so unfaithful? I mean, they just left Egypt, right? Moses is up on a mountain for 40 days, is all, and in 40 days' time they already build a golden calf and say, This is our God, let us go back to Egypt. And we just shake our heads. God feeds them with man and they start complaining about it. They go to a place without water, and God gives water out of a rock, and then they complain and complain and complain. And then they complain about the food they've gotten, so God blows in quail to give them meat to eat. And we're saying, I would never be like that. And we're just like that, aren't we? God provides, God does something, and then we begin to question him. And this is what the argument goes like. And and for Paul, he says, he says, so if our unfaithfulness, is it going to negate the faithfulness of God? If God has made a covenant with Abraham that we are the chosen people of God and we're to bring the message to the world and we're to bring the Messiah to the world and now so many Jewish people are rejecting that, does that negate God's faithfulness? Look, God can't even keep his covenant with us. But in fact, it demonstrates just the opposite. God put up with so much. Every time that they were unfaithful, God came through anyway. And even when God had to send them into exile for 70 years, Our God, the God of the Jew, the God of the Bible Was faithful to bring them back to the promised land Their unfaithfulness did everything but negate the faithfulness and the goodness of God How many prayers go answered that you and I don't deserve? All of them They are all answered by grace We don't merit, we don't earn them, we don't deserve them The Christian life is by faith in what God has done. And our faith doesn't merit anything. God is not obligated to do anything for those who believe. When the prodigal son came home, the father didn't say, Boy, now you deserve to have the fatted calf. You deserve to have the robe. You deserve to have the ring on your finger. No, that was totally the father's decision. Irregardless of the son's decision to repent and to believe and to come home. So our God, he is so faithful in the middle of our unfaithfulness. So how does Paul answer this question? Well, the first one I've already kind of explained. The second one, he just says, certainly not. No way, Megnoitoi. It's a strong word in the Greek. It will never happen. So what is the application for us? The application. Well, Paul gives us an application for us right here he quotes David's prayer in Psalm 51. So does our unfaithfulness make God's unfaithfulness negated without effect? Certainly not. That's his first answer. And then his second answer, let God be true and every man a liar. The word let has the idea of a permissiveness or a permission. But it's actually an imperative command. We need to submit. That's the idea. We need to surrender to God's truthfulness. God is not a man, Numbers 23, 19, that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should relent. What comes out of God's mouth is going to be fulfilled. So we need to repent and have a right attitude about God. His commandments are trustworthy. In Jeremiah chapter 33... In verses 21 through 25, God said, Israel will never cease being a nation. David will never lack having a man to sit on the throne of Israel because God is faithful. Even in all of Israel's unfaithfulness, after 2,000 years, 1948, the Zionist movement, Israel was put back on our maps. That's incredible. What does that demonstrate for you and I? Israel was so faithless, and our God is so faithful. God will never leave you. God will never forsake you. The promises of God in Christ Jesus are yes and amen. That is our good God. So that's one of the applications. But then he quotes from, Isaiah, uh, from Psalm 51, when David had messed up so badly, and he had committed this heinous crime, Having committed adultery, then having the husband set up for murder, and he pleads with God, and he says these words right here in Psalm 51, O God, that you may may be justified in your words, and that you may overcome when you are judged. Because that's how faithful our God is. In Psalm 89, and we don't have time to turn there, Psalm 89, 33 through 37, it talks about how God is so faithful to his covenant with King David that David's ancestry, David's posterity would never lack a man to sit on the throne. And all you have to do is read through 1 Kings and 2 Kings. And about 60% of the kings of Judah who were direct descendants from King David were evil, wicked men. And they did as Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, the king of Israel. Now those are two different nations, so don't get confused there. But that's how faithful God was. And Jesus Christ is the seed of David, and he is going to come. And God is going to fulfill all of his promises to the nation of Israel. And so you and I, we can apply this to our lives today Even when I'm questioning God, even when my faith is being shaken to its very core, I know that my God is going to be faithful and my God is going to answer those questions that I have and He's going to bring me through that trial. I'll give you one more illustration from the Old Testament. It's from Isaiah chapter 5. God had done so much for the nation of Israel, and He likens the nation of Israel to a vine in Isaiah chapter 5. And I'll kind of paraphrase all of it for us this morning. But God says, I took the best vine that I could find and I planted it in the best soil possible. I dunged it, fertilized it. I dug the ground so that I would aerate it. I took all the rocks out of this vineyard and I cast them out. I put a wall around this vineyard so no one would come and trample it. I put a tower in this vineyard so I could oversee it and make sure nothing happened to it. Then I put a wine press and I expected to find the finest grape juice anywhere. That was the nation of Israel. That's all that God had done for them. And then he says, when I came to expect good juice, it was nothing but bitter. And then he asks this rhetorical question, what more could I have done? Here's the application for you and I. What more could God do for you and I that we should be faithful to our God? Our God sent his son. Our God died in our place. Our God sent the Holy Spirit to us to enlighten us, to teach us, to equip us, to live victorious lives in Christ Jesus. His faithfulness takes away every excuse from you and I. Our second point this morning, our sin demonstrates the righteousness of God. But that is no excuse for sin. Now Paul picks up this whole thought and gives out a lot more details in Romans chapter 6. So we're not going to go there today. We'll get there eventually. But Paul just sort of glosses this question right now, but he's going to deal with it specifically in Romans chapter 6 where he says, Shall we continue in sin in order that grace may abound? And he answers it the exact same way. May it never happen. Certainly not. How are we who are dead to sin live any longer therein? Now we're not going to go there. But um, let's look at verses 5 through 8, because this is the second point. Our sin demonstrates God's righteousness, yet that is no excuse for sin. God is always just in condemning sin. Two reasons that Paul's already exposed. Why is God always just in condemning sin? Because God has given the law to Israel. First John tells us this, that sin, what is sin? Sin is transgression of the law. The Jew is without excuse. He had given them the law. Well, what about the Gentiles who don't have the law? Romans chapter 2 answers that, doesn't it? Even though the Jew did not have the law, they have the law written on their conscience. And they will be judged without the law, their conscience condemning them or excusing them when the secrets of their heart will be revealed according to my gospel by Jesus Christ. So they are all without excuse, Jew or Gentile, because he's given us the law. God is not unfair when he punishes sin. That's the question. Is God unfair? And I love the way Paul answers this. He says, Is God unjust while he inflicts wrath? What is his first answer? He says, I'm speaking as a man. In other words, that is natural wisdom. Natural wisdom opposed from the wisdom that comes from divine revelation. Now, I'm going to take a little detour to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and 1 Corinthians chapter 2. That whole section, the word wisdom, is given 13, I think 13 times, or a derivative of the word wisdom. And then you get to chapter 2, and it says the natural man, he does not discern the things of the spirit because they are foolish to him, because they are spiritually discerned. So the only way to have true wisdom is to reject human wisdom. And that's what Paul is saying, I am speaking as a man, I am using human wisdom. And we've got to reject that. In another passage, um, well, for the sake of time, we'll, we'll skip that one. But every Jew knew that there was going to be a judgment. Certainly not, for then how will God judge the world? Every Jew knew that there was going to be a judgment. And so he's using their own knowledge of the Bible to refute their argument. Every Jewish person knew that there was going to be divine judgment. If you go over to the book of Amos, I'm going to start talking fast. Caffeine is going to kick in here. (laughs) I'll try to slow down. But in Amos chapter 1 and chapter 2, for two woes and three, I will bring judgment on the nations of Moab, Ammon, the Philistines, Syria, Damascus. But then he gets to Israel. And he says this, and I'll have to paraphrase it again. Out of all the nations, Israel, it was only you that I knew. The Hebrew word to know is yada, And it doesn't mean that God didn't know who the Moabites were, the Ammonites were. It's the same word used for Adam and Eve and their intimacy with one another. He's saying, oh, Jew, you know I'm going to bring judgment on the nations. And you know because I have a special, intimate covenant relationship with you, I am going to bring judgment even more harshly upon you. So he answers this question, certainly not. You Jews people, you know that everybody's going to be judged, and you know that you're going to be judged even stricter because of your revelation. You have only known of all the families of the earth, therefore I will punish you for your iniquities. Well, what is the application again? God is always pleading with people. To avoid judgment. We know in our own minds. Every, everybody knows that sin and wickedness and vileness needs to be judged. But if you read the pages of the Bible. You especially read the prophets. And what is God doing throughout the entire Bible? He is pleading. He is drawing. He is preaching so that people will avoid God's judgment and wrath. So God has been pleading with us. I want to just give you a short verse from Ezekiel chapter 19, ch- chapter 18. Yet to the house of Israel, he says, the way of the Lord is not just. That's what the Jew was saying. We're in captivity. Ezekiel's saying, God, you're not fair. You've used these wicked Chaldeans to punish us. The way of the Lord is not just. O house of Israel. Are my ways not just? Is it not your ways that are unjust? Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, declares the Lord. Now what does Ezekiel call on you and I to do, everyone to do? He says, repent, turn from all your transgressions, lest iniquity be your ruin, cast away from you all your transgressions, and make yourself a new heart. ...and a new spirit. That's what you and I need to do... ...in view of God's judgment. That's the application. So abusing grace. Paul now in verse 7 and 8... ...really is answering an accusation against him. You're preaching this gospel of grace. You're preaching that I can't keep the law... ...and it's just become uncircumcision. You're preaching that being a descendant of Abraham... ...doesn't give me any special privileges... And you're preaching this gospel that these Gentiles who have been worshiping all the stars of heaven, all the hosts, doing sacrifices to these pagan gods, these demonic spirits, and now they are forgiven, they are justified. Oh, you're preaching this cheap gospel. All you have to do is believe in Jesus and it's free grace, live however you want to. You know what Paul says at the end of that? He says, people who think that's the gospel, their condemnation is just. That is the American gospel, my friend. It really is. Come to Jesus. Enjoy all the blessings and go to heaven and live how you want to right now. And people who have that attitude have never understood the gospel fully. They've never understood the power of salvation to deliver us from this present world. And the promise of salvation is this. You and I, through the knowledge of Jesus Christ, have been given exceedingly great and precious promises by which we are partakers of the divine nature. That is the gospel that saves you and I. We partake in the mind of Christ And he says, people who've got that attitude don't even know what God's all about, and they don't know what the gospel's all about, and their condemnation is just. So quick review. One, we have incredible resources at our disposal, don't we? I mean, Ben moved that library for us this week, and before he did, I was looking at the books on that bookshelf. Can you imagine people around the world, what they would do, Rick, to have just that little library that we have? And yet we don't even go over there and check books out. Well, maybe you've already got them at home. I don't want to be too harsh on us. But I look at all the books on my shelves. I look at the, the lexicons that I have, the computer programs that I have. I can just pull it up on my phone anytime I want to. We have been given the very oracles of God in America. We are so advantageous in this country. We can Google any good sermon we want to and download it and listen to podcasts. We are so blessed. So what advantage do we have as the American Christian? We have so much at our disposal. That's the first thing we need to think about. Second thing, God is so faithful even in our faithlessness. I've had prayers that were so pathetic that God answered anyway and I knew it was all of God. This is the greatest encouragement to you and I not to abuse it but to stay faithful to God. If my God will never leave me nor forsake me if my God doesn't judge me the minute I sin and he gives me the right to come and confess my sin and to cleanse me from all unrighteousness How much more should I be motivated to live a godly and holy and sanctified life? Fourth thing. Third thing. God is completely just, but our God desires us to turn and live. Lastly, a cavalier attitude. And that's really what Paul is addressing here, isn't it? This is cavalier. I'll just do as I want to. And why not say, let us just do evil so that good can come. More I sin, the better God looks. The more unfaithful I am, the more God looks faithful. Why don't I just do that? Why don't I just put put this diamond on the blackest backdrop as I can so that diamond just shines even brighter? That's a cavalier attitude about sin, and it reveals a humanistic wisdom and a shallow heart and an unrepentant life. So those are four things that we can take away from this passage this morning. I hope this helps us Understand the righteousness of God is completely exonerated in all that He does in our lives. Father, thank you for this passage. Thank you that you gave Paul divine wisdom through the Holy Spirit. Thank you, God, that we have so much in this country. We have so much in our own libraries at home. We have so many resources to know You. And God, you've entrusted this to us because we are Your ambassadors. God, it's not just to fill our heads with knowledge, but God, you want to plead through us to other people be reconciled to God. Father, you are so faithful, you are so good, and to whom much goodness have given, there should be much love. So, Father, I pray that you will just use that in our lives to bring us closer to you. Father God, I pray that we'll never be lackadaisical about our sin. God, I pray that our sin will grieve us. I pray, God, that our sin would drive us closer to Jesus to love you and want to serve you all the more. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.